0: When he was one day old, Paul Offit's feet were put in casts. He'd been born with club feet. The treatment healed his left foot, but not his right. So when Paul was five, he had surgery. But at the time, in the 1950s, the procedure hadn't been perfected. So I had
1: a a failed operation on my right foot, which landed me in Kernan's Hospital for Crippled Children, because that was back in the days when children's hospitals would often have names like crippled and feeble-minded in them. So I was there for six weeks. Paul found the hospital to be a lonely, scary place. There was one visiting hour
0: a week. The nurses were pretty rough. You were pretty much there in your bed by yourself. One of the most distressing parts of his day was listening to the agony of the 20 other children in the ward. Every one of them was infected with polio. And I remember that disease. I remember the iron lungs, and I
1: remember something called the Sister Kenny Hot Pack Treatments, where they would take these scaldingly hot rags, put them on withered muscles of the arms or legs, and I remember children screaming out in pain. It was hell. That image of those children who were vulnerable and helpless and alone really drove me to do the things I do. I think it's why I went into medicine because I think that the scars of our childhood invariably become the passions of our
0: adulthood. Today, Dr. Paul Offit is a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases and an expert on virology and vaccines. He devoted his life to developing a vaccine for rotavirus, a major cause of death for young children around the world. All the suffering he saw growing up could have been avoided if there had been a vaccine for polio. But in the early 1950s, there was no vaccine.
2: Polio occurs everywhere, in this country and throughout the world. Nearly everyone is in repeated contact with the virus and is infected by it at some time in his life. Polio
1: was a feared and devastating disease. I mean, every year there would be as many as 30, 40,000 children who would be paralyzed by this virus. There would be about 1,500 children who would be killed by this virus. To what figure
3: this, the worst polio epidemic in history, will take us? We do not know.
0: But then, in 1955, something incredible happened.
3: Greatest medical news in history. Dr. Jonas Salk discovers a vaccine that promises to wipe out childhood's crippling and killing enemy, polio.
0: When Jonas Salk created a vaccine for polio, it transformed life around the world in ways that seemed unimaginable. In America, the vaccine helped eliminate a disease that had ravaged the country for generations. And
3: the entire world heralded the discovery which assured an end to one of mankind's most dread diseases.
0: The polio vaccine was a miracle, and it remains one to this day. But there was a moment when everything was in doubt. In 1955, a medical mystery threatened to derail one of history's most important scientific breakthroughs. To get things back on track, investigators would have to figure out what had gone wrong
2: and convince the public that the polio vaccine was safe. Many questions have been raised. People are asking, is it absolutely safe? The thing to
4: remember is that this is a continuous process.
3: For in spite of the SOP vaccine, polio is not over.
0: This is One Year 1955, the Cutter Incident.
4: I'm Josh Levine, the
0: host of One Year. Next week, you'll hear the finale of our season on 1955. But today, we're excited to share my conversation with Dr. Paul Offit.
1: I am an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Disease and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and a professor of pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania.
0: Dr. Offit is also the author of a book about the release of the polio vaccine, which was arguably the most consequential worldwide event of 1955. Because before then, polio was a devastating global problem.
3: This year, the enemy, poliomyelitis, struck with such impact and fury that it shook the entire nation. It spread its crippling tentacles from ocean to ocean and border to
0: border. Poliomyelitis first caused outbreaks in the 1800s. It's a viral infection that is very contagious and spreads through person-to-person contact. The majority of polio infections cause no visible symptoms, but in severe cases, it attacks the nervous system.
2: The virus invades the spinal cord, or the brain, and causes muscle weakness or paralysis.
1: I think the devastation of polio was that it really didn't affect your ability to think or reason or appreciate everything that was going on with you.
3: All of us are trying so hard to get well, but right now, we're scared.
1: So you were paralyzed, your arms were paralyzed, your legs were paralyzed, or worse, your muscles of respiration were paralyzed, and you couldn't breathe on your own. So you would be in a so-called iron lung, this negative pressure ventilator, completely aware of everything that was happening to you. And some people who were put in iron lungs when they were five years old in the 1950s remained in iron lungs until they were in their 70s.
3: People stayed at home. Children were not allowed to leave their own yards, trying to hide from an unseen and deadly enemy.
0: Okay, so parents were absolutely terrified of polio and went to... Pretty extraordinary lengths to try to prevent their children from getting it. What do you remember about that? Polio is very much alive for me. And and so me and my two first
1: cousins wouldn't go to a public pool. We would swim in this little plastic pool in the backyard.
0: No swimmers
3: or boaters where crowds would normally be in summertime. Deserted beaches became a sign of the crippler's presence.
1: And It was really a birth of summer camps where people would go out of the city, out of New York City, or out of Baltimore, or out of Washington, D.C., and go to northern New York, uh, upstate New York, and have a summer camp to do that, to get away from polio. My father went to a camp, and there was a polio outbreak in that camp. And so there were children who were paralyzed in his camp. And when they got up the next morning to sing revelry and, and, and pledge allegiance to the flag, the camp director had hung himself because he felt he had let these people down because there had been a polio outbreak. That's how devastating that virus was.
2: There has been no
3: escape, no immunity. I wish we had a vaccine or a chemical or anything at all to prevent the disease itself.
0: Had there been a long process of trying to develop a polio vaccine up to that point? Right, so there weren't many vaccines before that. I mean, you had the um, the smallpox
1: vaccine, which was Edward Jenner's vaccine in the late 1700s. And then you fast forward 100 years, the next vaccine in the late 1800s is the rabies vaccine. And then you move into sort of the, the next vaccine would have been, say, the, the um, yellow fever vaccine, which was made by taking yellow fever virus and weakening it in laboratory cells. The flu vaccine is really what led to the polio vaccine. The flu vaccine um, was made in the laboratory of Thomas Francis. And what he did was he took influenza virus, he grew it up in eggs, he purified it, and then he killed it with the chemical formaldehyde. There was a young researcher who was working in his laboratory at the time, named Jonas Salk, who saw that happen.
4: I did sense that there was an opportunity to continue the work I was doing on influenza and to begin to work on polio.
0: That's Jonas Salk in a 1991 interview In 1947, at the age of 33, he was appointed the director of the University of Pittsburgh's Virus Research Laboratory. It was shortly after he took that position that he got to work trying to solve the problem of polio.
4: So I didn't delay, didn't waste any time.
0: Salk believed that it would be possible to create an effective vaccine containing only inactivated or killed virus. Other scientists had tried to do that in the 1930s and failed. But he thought the techniques developed since then would fix the problem. And Salk was convinced that his vaccines would be safer than ones made with weakened live virus, which still had some capacity to
4: infect. The principle that I tried to establish was that it was not necessary to run the risk of infection, that if we could inactivate the virus, that we could move on to a vaccine very quickly. And so it seemed to me the safer and more certain way to proceed.
1: And nobody thought that was true. Everybody thought the only way you could have long-term immunity or so-called convalescent immunity was to either be naturally infected or vaccinated with a live, weakened vaccine. And what he did that he never got credit for and frankly could have arguably won him the Nobel Prize is he proved that you could give an inactivated virus
0: and induce long-term immunity. I mean, it's counterintuitive, right, that you could get long-term immunity from an inactivated virus. Right. And now we know you can get long-term immunity with a purified
1: protein vaccine, like the hepatitis B vaccine or the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is just one protein. Same thing is true with the SARS-CoV-2 virus vaccines, which is also, ultimately, you're just making one protein, but can still get long-term immunity. So I think that was really, in many ways, I think his greatest scientific achievement, but people just didn't believe him.
0: So how did Jonas Salk break through and make a polio vaccine that worked? Was he doing something different than other researchers had done or was he doing the same thing better? So the the key to the polio vaccine
1: was not using brains to grow the virus. Whatever experimental animal you were working with, the key was not using nervous system cells. You could grow polio virus in non-neural cells like monkey kidney cells or monkey testicular cells. And that is what Jonas Salk used. I'm gonna grow it up, I'm gonna purify it, and then I'm gonna kill it with formaldehyde, which is what he saw Thomas Francis do in terms of making the flu vaccine. And that's how he made his vaccine. So in theory, there was not anything he did that was novel, but what he did do was he did it the right way. He spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to make sure that he could separate poliovirus from those cells, and then get the right temperature, the right pH, which is level of acidity, the right quantity of formaldehyde. How long did he need to treat to make sure that he had no residual live virus? And
0: in his hands, he didn't. In 1952, after just more than three months, Salk and his small laboratory team had created a killed virus polio vaccine. Soon after, he quietly tested it out on a few dozen kids at a children's hospital near Pittsburgh.
4: We saw what I called a flicker of antibody response. And so that was the first evidence uh, in the human subject that we were on the right track. It's like seeing the light said, let's go on as quickly as we can.
0: Once word of Salk's trials leaked out, anticipation began to build that a cure was finally here. But the truth was, there was still a long way to go. Because Salk's vaccine would have to be tested on a much larger scale.
3: Good evening. This is an interim report on this vaccine.
0: In early 1955, the journalist Edward R. Murrow told his TV audience about a massive experiment that had begun the previous April.
3: Last year, schoolchildren got this in their arm. Dr. Thomas Francis of the Evaluation Center at the University of Michigan conducted the experiment.
0: And so this extremely logistically complicated field trial of Salk's vaccine, the scope of it is just remarkable.
1: Yes, I think it was arguably the largest test of a medical product ever. So that was a 1.8 million child study. The March of Dimes paid for this trial. The, the government basically paid through the March of Dimes, which was a private philanthropic organization. So what you have was you had 420,000 children who were inoculated with the polio vaccine, Salk's inactivated polio vaccine. 1.2 million children served as observed, uninoculated control. So if that study were done today, it would cost roughly $3 billion, which is why you don't see studies that pig uh, today.
3: Other than inspecting all vaccine made, Dr. Jonas Salk had nothing whatever to do with the experiment.
1: And Salk didn't want to do it. He, he didn't want to do that trial because 200,000 children were inoculated with a placebo, which was essentially salt water. An
3: inert substance that has no effect whatever. Neither the children nor the parents knew who got the vaccine and who got the placebo.
1: He couldn't conscience that. He believed his vaccine worked and he believed it was safe and he didn't want to inoculate children in the 1950s with salt water 16 children died in that study from polio, all in the placebo group. 36 children were paralyzed in that study, 34 in the placebo group. But for the flip of a coin, those children could have lived long and productive lives. I mean, I too was a first and second grader in the 1950s, so they could have lived the life I lived, but for the flip of a coin. And I think that these are sort of the gentle heroes you leave behind in these kinds of studies that never
0: get recognized. As for the children who got the real vaccine and not the placebo, Jonas Salk felt certain that they would be protected from the horrors of polio. In the spring of 1955, the world would find out if he was right.
3: This is Tuesday, April 12, 1955. A day which may well mark the most significant event in all of medical history. The world will very soon know whether the battle against the disease that has twisted Hundreds of thousands of young bodies has
0: been won. That morning, Dr. Thomas Francis stepped up to a microphone at the University of Michigan. He'd conducted the trial of Salk's vaccine, and he was ready to present the results.
2: It is a summary report of the data from the entire vaccine evaluation program. On this basis, one might suggest that vaccination was 80 to 90% effective against paralytic poliomyelitis.
3: Scientists usher in a new medical age with the monumental reports that prove the Salk vaccine against crippling polio to be a sensational success.
1: And when Thomas Francis made that announcement at the podium at Rackham Hall at the University of Michigan, he said the famous three words, safe, effective, potent.
2: It is safe, effective, and potent. Those words will live in medical history.
1: And those three words were on the headline of every major newspaper in this country. And church bells rang out, and synagogues held special prayer meetings, and and the Voice of America carried that over to Europe, and departments sort of stopped while that announcement was made. And I remember my mother crying. That's how impactful this was because that's how scared people were
0: of polio. You know, your mother crying, I think that was a response in households across America. You also mentioned in the book more than 100 million Americans sent in dimes to the National Foundation, and also that a Gallup poll showed that more Americans knew about the trial of the vaccine than knew the full name of the president. It just seems impossible to overstate what an important moment this was. There was really nothing bigger. Right. It was us
1: pulling together to do this. We pulled together because we saw polio for what it was, which was a shared national tragedy. And maybe it's we, we were just coming off the shared national tragedy of World War II, but that was an American vaccine. The public made that vaccine. It's much we have to be proud of.
2: We can all be proud of the soft vaccine brought about by American scientists and American giving. We can all share in the hope that this victory will lead to many more in the years ahead.
0: One aspect of this that's just really crazy to think about is that there is this public announcement, the vaccine then gets submitted for licensure, it's approved less than three hours later, and then health clinics get doses of the polio vaccine that same evening. It just seems unbelievable. And Ovetta Kolpabi, who was the secretary
1: of, the, of what was then the Department of Health, Education and Welfare, was angry that it took that long. I mean, she, <laughs> she was ready to be on television that night, and here it took at least two and a half hours to license that Salk polio vaccine, because yeah, she What were w- they doing for those two and a half hours? <laughs> Looking at data.
3: <laughs> the
0: next challenge,
3: commercial production of the polio vaccine in quantity. A huge task, a complex process.
0: Okay, the vaccine is safe. Now you got to make it, right? Right. And that's always the hard part, by the way. Just like, say, scale up is the hardest part of making a vaccine. <laughs> yeah, just make it. Just make it. Right, just make it. Just,
1: because, you, know, you know, Jonas Salk made... Maybe 700 doses that he tested in the Pittsburgh area. But now you're talking about making millions and tens of millions and ultimately hundreds of millions of doses.
3: Leading drug firms shifted into high gear to meet a national demand which spread to every crossroads. One of the greatest mass inoculations in medical annals.
0: Close to five million polio vaccinations were administered in the first weeks after its release. Most of the shots were given in schools to first and second graders.
3: Each hastily set up center became a mecca for anxious parents shepherding little Johnny and little Jill to their inoculations. They're protected, and it didn't hurt a bit.
0: And then there was a problem. The problem was how Jonas Salk's polio vaccine got made, a manufacturing error that put lives at risk In time, it would become clear exactly what had gone wrong and how to make sure it didn't happen again. But until that was figured out, American families faced a cruel possibility that all their rejoicing about the end of polio had come too soon. We'll be back in a minute.
4: On April 18,
0: 1955, a California woman named Josephine Gottsdenker drove her two children to the pediatrician. It was six days after the polio vaccine became available, and she wanted her kids to get the shot as soon as possible. But about a week later, her five-year-old daughter, Ann, started vomiting. Then she lost motion in her legs. Ann Gottsdenker
1: was permanently paralyzed. She's still alive. She lives in Southern California and has suffered mightily from that that disease. She was vaccinated with something to protect
0: her against polio, and in fact, it caused polio. When did it first become clear that something was wrong on a larger scale? What happened was there were
1: suddenly cases of polio that were following the polio vaccine. What was odd about that was, one, that it was temporally associated with giving the vaccine, but two, and more importantly, it really wasn't polio season yet. And polio was really a summer disease, not a, a, uh, a spring disease, and this was all happening in the spring. So that caused people to stop the, the polio vaccine, period.
2: As Surgeon General of the Public Health Service, I recommended the day before yesterday that vaccination programs against poliomyelitis be temporarily postponed.
0: On May 6th, less than a month after the rollout began, the Surgeon General Leonard Sheely suspended all polio vaccinations in the U.S.
2: But we believe, and I am sure, that the American people join us in believing that in dealing with the lives of our children, it is impossible to be too cautious.
1: They were trying to answer the question, if you'd gotten this polio vaccine, were you at increased risk of getting polio? And the answer was yes. There were roughly 70,000 children who got this vaccine who had abortive polio, means short-lived paralysis. There were more than 60 who were permanently paralyzed, and there were 10 who were killed. I think this was the single worst biological disaster in the history of the United
0: States. Out of the millions of children who got vaccinated in those first few weeks, only a very small percentage became sick. And for those who did, there was a pattern.
2: In the hands of one manufacturer, on some vaccine only, a problem arose. The vaccine of the other manufacturers appeared to be all right.
0: That's the Surgeon General Leonard Sheeley on Meet the Press. The single manufacturer he's talking about is Cutter Laboratories in Berkeley, California.
1: There were five companies that made Jonas Salk's polio vaccine. Cutter, Wyeth, Pittman-Moore, Eli Lilly, and Park Davis. Cutter made
0: vaccine primarily for the West and Southwest. It quickly became apparent that Cutter had made some kind of disastrous mistake, one that had compromised the safety of Jonas Salk's polio vaccine. The tragedy came to be called the Cutter Incident.
2: Are these uh, experts also going to try to find out what happened to the vaccine that went bad, the lots that uh, were manufactured out in California? Yes, we will be discussing the total of our findings uh, prior to making our report. Have they determined how it got into the vaccine? No, that we have not determined yet. We're still studying that.
0: We just described how this was just such an important moment of celebration that everyone was so excited. And so then what's going through people's minds during this period when it's not clear if the vaccine will ever be deployed again, right? It's not clear what happened. I think as a
1: general rule, I know it's hard to believe there was ever a time like this in America. People generally trusted the pharmaceutical companies. They generally trusted uh, public health service. They generally trusted the government. And so they were waiting to see what happened. I
0: believe you that people took this news with equanimity, but it just seems so counter to, um, you know, what we've experienced in more recent years. But, But the people trusted the government. I mean, they realized that there was a problem
1: and they, they fully believed that that problem would be worked out. And it was.
4: When we looked into that, it became clear immediately that this manufacturer did not follow the procedures that were set forth.
0: This is Jonas Salk, speaking in 1991.
4: And it was partly because of a disregard for the new principles that were introduced in order to make sure that the vaccine would be safe.
1: What went wrong at Cutter Laboratories? Uh, Eventually, we realized that the problem was filtration, separating the virus from the cells and cell debris to make sure that there was no residual cell debris, because what will happen if that occurs is the virus will hide in the cells and and the formaldehyde or the inactivating agent won't be able to penetrate into those cells. And so the key was being able to do that. When Salk made his vaccine, he made it using a filter called a Sites filter, S-E-I-T-Z, which was a a very slow process, a very laborious process, but it it, it clearly separated cells and cell debris from from the virus. It was called Gin Pure. But what the companies did was a different way because they had to mass produce it.
3: First, the virus solution goes through these metal tubes containing porcelain filters to strain out all kidney tissue and remove any stray bacteria.
1: And that was a
0: filtration system that was dependent on the skill of the technician that made it. One of the points that you make in the book was that in 1955, none of the companies got the manufacturing of the vaccine exactly right.
1: Cutter was the company that did the worst job at inactivating that vaccine. But they all had problems separating that virus from the, the cell debris. They all did. That's why it should have never been called the Cutter Incident. It should have been called the scale-up incident because all of the companies had a problem.
0: Okay, so the government figures out what happened here. Uh, how did the problem get fixed?
1: So what they did with the government was they put in uh, better safety testing. They put in uh, more stringent criteria for making sure that these vaccines could be made with consecutive lots that were safe. And, and the inactivated vaccine then was introduced again.
3: We've now been assured that the program is getting back on the track.
0: The Surgeon General lifted the pause on polio vaccinations. He assured Americans that Salk's creation was safe.
2: Our new standards are going to make it, if anything, just a little safer than it was. Then in the future, no American mother need worry about having her child inoculated. No, I think not. I think this vaccine is as safe as men and the tests available to us can make it.
0: Even after the Surgeon General's approval, some parents and doctors thought it made sense to take a wait-and-see approach. Then, over the summer, America got hit by a series of outbreaks. In Chicago, 36 people died of polio. None of the 36 had gotten the recommended three doses of Salk's vaccine. This was real-world proof that the vaccine was safe, effective, and potent. And with that, the National Vaccination Campaign picked up where it left off. In
3: 1955, over 10 million children received one or more injections of salt vaccine, safe at last, safe from the terrible invasion of polio.
0: Isn't sort of the important context and backdrop here that polio itself was so dangerous and so scary that the issues with the vaccine had to be viewed With that in mind, I can't
1: overstate how frightening that disease was. And I I think people don't remember it. They don't realize it.
0: There are people who would argue that telling this story now could potentially fuel anti-vaccine beliefs, and you're not someone who wants to do that clearly. So why do you think it's important to tell this story now in a world where vaccination rates aren't, I'm guessing, where you'd want them to be?
1: Right. I I think the importance of this story is that very quickly it was figured out what the problem was. Very quickly, there were safety tests put in place. It was really the birth of vaccine regulation in this country. The Division of Biological Standards was born. Ten vaccine regulators quickly became 150. And now, you know, the FDA regulates vaccines much more stringently. That was the result of that incident. So by the late 1970s, we eliminated polio from the United States, eliminated this feared and devastating disease. And I think what, what the the lesson to me in this story is that we took a step back, we figured out what, what went wrong and we corrected it. And so to me, it's a, it should be um, a tale that makes us feel better about our ability to adapt and respond and make changes that need to be made. But you're right. I mean, I think those who oppose vaccines will always try and find something to say about this. In fact, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., You know, he's an anti-vaccine activist who scares people about vaccines, and he's tried to scare people about the polio vaccine. And it's very easy to do that now because people aren't scared of
0: polio. I was gonna say the kind of perverse thing about vaccines and the polio vaccine in general was that it was so successful that now for people who didn't live through that moment, and there are fewer and fewer people who did, you just can't believe that polio was ever a problem just because the vaccine did its job. Right. Uh, I, and, you know, I'm, uh, my wife and I are
1: fortunate. We now have a little granddaughter who's, who's six months old, and she has been fully vaccinated, not surprisingly, including, you know, vaccines against polio. And, um, you know, certainly her, my son has never seen this, this virus. I mean, my daughter-in-law has never seen this virus. But they trust the fact that, that it could be a problem. But you're right. I think vaccines are largely a victim of their own success. And when people hear the word polio, they think of black and white pictures. They don't think this has anything to do with them. And I think today, when you see sort of vaccine rates sort of starting to erode, and you saw in June of last year, June of 2022, a case of polio in New York for someone who'd never left this country. For the first time in more than a decade, the United States has an active case of polio on its hands.
2: With health experts urging unvaccinated Americans to get inoculated against the disease.
1: There's every reason to believe polio can come back if we let immunization rates down, because polio still exists in the world.
0: And if it still exists in the world, it can come back here. Paul Offit is a pediatrician and vaccine expert and the author of the book, The Cutter Incident. Next time, the season finale of One Year, 1955. And be sure to listen, because we're going to tell you what year we're covering next. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more of One Year, 1955, subscribe to Slate Plus. At the end of the season, Slate Plus subscribers will get a member-exclusive episode. In addition, as a member, you'll also hear every Slate podcast without ads, and never hit the paywall on Slate's site. If you'd like to sign up for Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash oneyearplus. Again, that's slate.com slash oneyearplus. This episode of One Year was produced by Kelly Jones, Sophie Summergrad, and Evan Chan, One Year's senior producer. It was edited by me, Josh Levine, one year's editorial director, with Joel Meyer and Derek John, Slate's executive producer of narrative podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merritt Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. Thank you to Charlotte Jacobs, whose book Jonas Salk: A Life was a valuable resource in the making of this episode. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1955 at one at slate.com. And you can call us on the one-year hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Dania Abdelhamid, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strong, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with our season finale.